I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Jason Flom, host of Wrongful Conviction, but this week, instead of hearing me, I've invited legitimate genius from the legal world to bring their knowledge and expertise to the conversation as guest host. Here at Wrongful Conviction, we believe that sharing the stories of the incarcerated innocent can create real change in the world, even beyond what these real-life legal superheroes do every day. In the middle of one November night in 1995, there was an explosion in Brooklyn, New York. 19 different people called 911 to report what they heard and what they saw. They reported seeing two men running up to a subway token booth on Kingston Avenue. They poured gasoline into the coin slot and threatened the attendant with a match. Almost immediately, the toll booth burst into flames. The attendant was a man named Harry Kaufman, and as the toll booth caught on fire, he did too. Harry was able to run up the street where passers-by helped extinguish the flames on his body. More than 80% of his body was badly burned. He died a few weeks later. The crime made headlines in New York and around the country. Prominent politicians like Senator Bob Dole and Mayor Rudy Giuliani mentioned the case in their tough-on-crime rhetoric. Pressure was mounting for the police to find the attackers. With little physical evidence and no clear suspects, Detective Louis Scarcella turned to one of his favorite tactics, coercing witnesses. One of the 911 callers, James Irons, was forced to give a false confession and to name two more accomplices. Thomas Malik and Vincent Ellerby were both detained and interrogated, and both eventually gave false confessions under pressure. After an investigation and a trial riddled with lies and misconduct, Thomas Malik and Vincent Ellerby were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hi. 
Hi everybody, it's Laura Nyrider. I am so glad to be here guest hosting another episode of Wrongful Conviction. I'm the co-director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, and you might also recognize my voice from another series I co-hosted on this podcast feed, False Confessions. Today I'm here with a real fighter, a real survivor of False Confessions, Vincent Ellerby. Vince, you've endured more than any human should be asked to endure. I'm so honored to get a chance to talk to you today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Vincent Ellerby. I did 24 years, 11 months, and 25 days. For something I had nothing to do with, I was forced to take the weight for a crime I had nothing to do with. And I'm Ron Coopy. Uh, I was the lawyer for Vince's co-defendant way back in the 90s, and they were tried together, although in front of separate juries. Ron, we're so glad to have you here. And Vince, I am so glad you said every one of those days, because every one of those days, hours, and minutes counts. But Ron, I'm going to start out by asking you, what was New York City like in the 1990s in terms of crime and how people were talking about crime back then? By 1995, we were pretty much in our 10th year of the crack epidemic, uh, which saw a dramatic increase in crime and, and a wildly dramatic increase in punitive law enforcement. It was a time in which the, the super predator theory uh, was gaining and had gained tremendous currency in legal circles and sociological circles. It was coined by a sociologist who later retracted it, but the damage had been done. The theory was there was a whole generation of black youth growing up without fathers, living on the streets who were committing crimes. There was never any consequence to their crimes. They would always get away with crime after crime after crime. And as a result, they would become super predators. These are people who were so feral and so conscienceless. They would go out and do anything to anybody without any empathy, compassion, or mercy. And we were in the process of creating a whole generation of these people. And the only thing that we could do about it as a society was to incarcerate them forever. It's one of the most toxic theories out there, right? I mean, we know this is the theory that led to the wrongful conviction of the Central Park Five, for example, now called the Exonerated Five, just a few years before this happened to Vince. And there are so many other cases around the country that were driven by the super predator myth, right? Here in Chicago, the Dixmoor Five, the Englewood Four, the Marquette Park Four, the Uptown Seven. These numbers just keep mounting and mounting and mounting. And Vince's case in particular is a horrific example of these racist tropes being used to incarcerate black kids, black male children in particular. So tell us how this toxic brew of racist myths showed up in this case. So on November 26th, uh, 1995, uh, outside of a token booth in Brooklyn, two people, two people, not three, and this will become important later on in the story, two people went to that token booth. Uh, one of them was armed with a 30 caliber carbine, a rifle. The other had a bottle with gasoline in it. They were trying to rob the token booth. The token booth clerk, Harry Kaufman, uh, refused to give up the money, and he was behind bulletproof glass. And the perpetrators uh, poured gasoline into the slot. According to the prosecution, they then set it on fire. The token booth exploded. It blew up uh, the booth. It blew up the money. 
and it burned up Harry Kaufman. And he had third degree burns over most of his body. And he lingered in the burn unit agonizing day after agonizing day until I think December 10th, he died. It was one of those horrific crimes that still made the headlines in New York, uh, even though crime overall actually had, had dropped as the crack epidemic waned. But it was still one of those incredibly high profile crimes that people use to illustrate why you can no longer live in New York City. Our mayor at the time, a guy better known to this audience um, in his latter incarnation as a Trump apologist, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, for reasons still unclear, noted that the movie Money Train had just come out. And he claimed, utterly without evidence, that this particular robbery murder had been inspired by the movie Money Train. So it was a horrific crime. And everybody agreed it was a horrific crime, of course, made more so by the, the fabulism of, of our mayor. What evidence did investigators begin to look into? What leads did they have to go on? The problem was they had no suspects. There were no fingerprints at the scene. The firearm couldn't be traced. This was before the days when there were cameras everywhere and everybody had a cell phone. Uh, there were no cell phone towers. There was absolutely no evidence uh, that, that the cops had to give them a lead to anybody. So when nobody's a suspect, everybody becomes a suspect. Now that night, that night, 19 people called 911 to report an explosion in the subway station. One of those people was a guy named James Irons. And he was in his mom's apartment. He called up as well. Later, his mom got on the phone. And um, this is noteworthy because James Irons sounded normal on the phone. That is, obviously, he was panicked. Something horrible had just happened, but, but it just seemed like another 911 caller. So I want to take a minute and just ask you to tell us a little bit about the cops who ended up getting assigned to this investigation. They were out of the 79th Precinct, right? Stephen Camille of the Brooklyn North Homicide Squad was lead on this case. And he was assisted by Louis Scarcella, which is a name that listeners of this podcast will remember. Can you give us a little bit of background here? Now disgraced detective Louis Scarcella and his partner, Stephen Camille, were, were known as Batman and Robin. And Scarcella was very much Batman. Whatever the lead was, whoever the lead detective was named, whether it was Camille or Murphy or O'Reilly or Dorita or O'Toole, um, it was Scarcella who was actually in charge. He led a homicide task force throughout Brooklyn that had a roving commission to stick their nose in any homicide they wished. And the amazing thing about Detective Scarcella and the reason he received such adulation within the police department and the DA's office was he got witnesses and he got confessions, even in cases where there appeared to be no witnesses and even in cases where there appeared to be no suspects. He was known as the closer as well, because he will close this case. Uh, at this point, there's, there's close to, I think, two dozen 
wrongful conviction cases attributed to Scarcella. I, I think at this count, 18 have been exonerated. There are still some cases in the pipeline that may or may not result in exonerations. Uh, out of 90 trials, 90 homicide trials that, that, that he works. That's unbelievable. It sounds like he's been responsible for so many lost centuries. It's mind-blowing. He's been responsible for lost millennia of black life. If you add all those years together, it's not going to be in the hundreds at this point. Pretty sure it's going to be in the thousands. And he didn't have any suspects either. So, so when you have a case like this with no suspects, kind of everybody's a suspect. So what you do is you go out and you take every snitch, every informant, every person on the street that you know of, and you basically beat the crap out of them. So they go back to the 911 calls. I don't know, the television theory, the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime, and maybe one of the 911 callers actually committed the crime. Right. So so footnote here, you know, you're told if you see something, say something. The lesson of this case, if you see something and you say something, depending on who you are, you may end up getting convicted for what you saw and said. Because one of those good Samaritans who called 911 who tried to help out was this kid, 18 year old James Irons. But here's the thing, right? If, if he did the crime and then called 911 from his home, he would have had to run really, really fast in order to get home and call 911 when their call logs say he did. He would have been out of breath on that 911 call, and he wasn't. That just doesn't make sense. So right there, right there, if you were paying attention, which nobody was, you would have had your doubts. Anyway, Scarcello and Camille bring him in, and he gives a confession. He gives a full confession. The confession itself is riddled with things that are completely untrue. And he starts to name people that he was with. He places himself as the lookout. So the way this works in interrogations, right, is that when you've got a group of people that you want to turn into suspects, you bring one of them in and you accuse that person of being there. But you say, hey, I'm going to cut you a deal. You were probably the lookout. You probably weren't an active participant. And things will go easier for you if you just tell us a story where you were the lookout and you saw some other guys do it. Right? You see this over and over and over again in all these cases around the country involving multiple defendants, all of whom eventually falsely confessed to the same crime. Right. And, so, and they get people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew there was going to be a robbery, but I know nothing about a murder. And the guy thinks he's getting, OK, I'll do time for the robbery. Lo and behold, he just confessed to felony murder. Or, yeah, you were just a lookout. They just asked you to look out while they went in and did something. Yeah, yeah. I was just like making sure nobody came down. I didn't have a weapon. Boom, you've just confessed again to acting in concert in a murder. Very, very common. And it's one of the flashing yellow lights when you see it today. Exactly. It's a hallmark of a false confession. So here you've got the idea that Irons would just be a lookout. The details of his story aren't matching up with the facts, right? The number of people, the gun. He's getting things wildly off, but he does put some names forward. He does. He, he, among other names he puts in are Vincent Ellerby and Thomas Malik. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. So, Vince, Ron and I just spoke at length about your hometown, Brooklyn, New York, and the horrible crime that happened there in November 1995. Vince, I want to ask you, what was it like to realize all of a sudden that you were caught up in this case and you were facing these charges? When I went to Rikers Island, I I didn't really have enough time to really sit back and dwell on the case because, you know, you're walking into Rikers Island, you know, you got to worry about the phone, making sure that nobody take nothing from you. So in my mind, I I just blanked it. I just blocked it all out. I just put all my faith in my lawyer because I said to myself, it's no way possible that they're going to find me guilty. It's impossible. No matter what, it's impossible. No matter the confessions, they're going to see everything. It's, it's a lie. It's, it's mathematically impossible for you not to see it. A blind man can see it. You were in, like, short-term survival mode, right? Like, this is going to be over because they're going to see I'm innocent. Yeah. So it's just out here. They say this is a normal environment. But when you get it locked up, that's an abnormal environment. So you got to adjust to that. I I I just put my faith in my lawyer, and I put my faith in my co-defendant because he already knew the law. So for me, it was just I was just in survival mode. Survival mode in Rikers mm-hmm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's no joke. No, you got to make adjustments real fast. And there's somebody else in Rikers at the time, right? Somebody who ended up giving police what he said was information about your case. Yeah. Uh, Raekwon Shabazz. Yeah. They call him Ice Pick Marlin. <laughs> I met him. I knew him for all the three days. And I'm not going to lie to you, when we went to trial, we were sitting there and we on trial. So I never knew him as Raekwon Shabazz. I only knew him as Marlon. So as we sitting there, when the DA, I mean, the, yeah, the DA calls their next witness, they say Raekwon Shabazz. And I turned and looked at my co-defendant and he put his head down. So I tapped him. I'm like, what's up? And he shook his head like. So I'm saying to myself, like, like okay, who... 
and the door opened up and he come out. He got this jean suit on, looking fly. And in my mind, I'm saying, what is he doing here? And he get on the stand and he get to proceed to telling him how Tommy told him what we did and how I told him what we did and that I was in one upper with him for like three months. And I'm, and I'm saying to myself, like, they got records that will show you how long I was up there. So when, the, when, when Ron and George is questioning the guy, and you just, you just, you just see it. You, you see it. Then they brought up his past. That's when I found out about we wasn't the first individuals he did this to. In my mind, I know I'm coming home now. So you're there. You're being tried with Tommy, right? You're being tried together. Separate juries, but you're being tried together. And Shabazz comes up and says that you confessed again to him. And you must be sitting there going, I'm going home because this guy's crazy. When you look at everything from every witness that they had to all the confessions to everything, if you just look at it, it's not a jury in the world. It's not a jury in the universe that's going to convict them of this crime. Ron, can you give us a rundown of this trial? How was this case with all these holes, these confessions that are obviously wrong, how does it result in these convictions? This was really before the time there was much science available on the issue of, of false confessions. Uh, some people had started work on it. Saul Casson, I think, had been doing it for a few years. But the idea of, of calling a false confession expert, that, that just was not an idea that existed uh, in, in New York criminal trial practice at the time. And Raekwon Shabazz, I actually did one of these, these sort of Bush League lawyer things. I took his criminal record, which at that time was written on paper, and I taped all of the sheets together. And as I approached him, I let the sheets unspool as they did. And, and I handed him the document, which at this point stretched all the way back to the defense table. And I asked him if he recognized it. And he said, yes, it's his criminal record. I knew that he had done this twice before, and I considered him to be a so-called professional informant. He, he worked for the DA's office, not regularly, but whenever he needed to. Whenever he got in a jam, he would cook up some sort of plot, some confession, some conspiracy, and go to the DA's office and trade it for lighter treatment. The DA's office admitted that, yes, he had testified once in Brooklyn, and yes, he had testified once in Queens. Judge Francis Xavier Agito, a name which should also be familiar to your listeners because he presided over many of these wrongful convictions, said, ah, two, two times isn't enough to make him a professional witness. And they let him testify. What we did not know, but the Brooklyn DA's office certainly knew, was that in the Brooklyn case, which preceded this, he had testified that he was a professional liar. He was asked, you lie for a living, don't you, Mr. Shabazz? And he said, yes. It's insane. I mean, when you think about the way that this playing field was stacked, right, it's stacked from the moment that a teenager walks into the interrogation room alone, without a parent, without a lawyer, without any clue about what's facing him. And at trial, that all just continues with lies and concealments. Vince, I want to ask you if you'll take us back to that moment. I mean, 
This is when the wheels really come off, right? You've been sitting at this trial. You've been telling yourself, I just have to make it to the acquittal. I just have to make it to the moment when the jury realizes that this entire situation is constructed bullshit. Well, when they, after closing arguments, they came back with the verdict real fast. They didn't, it wasn't, I don't, I don't even think we probably wasn't even downstairs an hour, something like that. They called us back upstairs. I remember sitting down and, and I'm saying to myself, all right, I'm about to slide up out of here, it's over. And they said, we found the defenders guilty on all charges. So quick, fast, I did a calculation in my head of how old I'd be when I go to the board. I said, I'd be 42 years old. I said, I'd be an old man. My daughter wasn't even born yet. Her mother was six months pregnant. But it really didn't hit me until I went back to get sentenced. Because even then, I still thought they might have made a mistake. Might be a chance. But I think the one good day about that sentence, <laughs> that day, I wore regular clothes, jeans, sweater, sneakers. <laughs> and my co-defendant, <laughs> that's the only thing that made me smile that day. He walked into the courtroom. <laughs> and to this day, I don't know where he got it from, but he had on a lime green suit. A lime green suit. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying to myself, this guy can't be serious. They're about to give us 25 years and you walk in here with a lime green suit on. And I remember when they was taking me out the courtroom, I started singing Tupac. And somehow when I went to the board, somehow it changed from me singing Tupac to me cursing the judge out. The parole board, when I went to the board, they asked, they asked me, did I curse the judge out? I said, no, I didn't curse the judge out. I said, I read a statement that my mother wrote for me. I said, and when I walked out, I was singing Tupac. I said, I don't know how y'all got that. But it really didn't hit me until I got downstate that I wasn't going home for a long time. How did you survive all those years in prison? Fear. Y'all understand something. Rackers Island is different from the penitentiary, and you hear all the horror stories about the penitentiary. When I get downstate, an old-timer that I ran into, he asked me, did I want to do a smooth bed? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, this is what you do. He said, for the first five years of your bed, you put in major work. I don't care if somebody owe you a stamp. If they don't have your money when they say they're going to have it, you give them the business. So what happens, what happened to me, and it still affect me to this day. My heart became real cold because that's what the penitentiary turned me into. I drink now a lot to shield all the pain I go through every day. Nobody know what it's like. When you go to prison for a crime you commit and you wake up every morning and you go to brush your teeth, wash your face, you can accept that. But when you're there, Day after day, hour after hour, year after year, for something you didn't do. A lot of hate build up. A lot of thoughts about suicide set in. I couldn't put a rope around my neck. Couldn't take a lot of pills. I couldn't do that. So I would cause a lot of problems hoping that the police would kill me. Because I became tired. Nobody know what it's like for me, even to this day. Just to fight to get up 
I got to give myself a reason to keep getting up every day. Yeah, people see me. I still look young. Still got my swag. But they don't know what it's like for me. I gave these people 20 plus years of my life for no reason. And they star detective. He's living somewhere, suburb somewhere. He get his pension. He all right. He all right. No matter how many times people do stories about that coward, nothing will never happen to him. But I thought, they say when you commit a crime, you go to jail for it. I ain't commit no crime. I went to jail. They exonerated us. So that means everything he did, he lied. He committed crimes. He, he falsified evidence. They say it's a misdemeanor what he did. Okay, cool. I know a whole lot of people that got misdemeanors that went to jail. I was with a few of them. So I understand what y'all doing. I appreciate it. Let me make this clear to y'all, and I'm just being honest. There's only one person that's going to make him pay for what he did to all us. Every one of us, not just me and my co-defendants. We ain't the only ones that coward violated. We ain't the only ones. But the law going to make him pay for it, though. He going to be all right. He going to be all right. They broke me a little bit. But I'm going to keep fighting every day, though. My co-defendant need me to hold him down now. It's my turn. He held me down. He held me down. While I was in prison ripping and running, he was in the law library fighting for both of us. These tears just ain't for me. These tears for him too. My co-defendant is hurt. The same way they broke me, they broke my co-defendant too. But he kept fighting for us. That's why I'm sitting here. He got us to this point. No matter how many interviews I got to do, I got us. I'm going to let the people know about that coward. I got nephews that I ain't even grow up with. My moms, my sister. What about their pain? What about them knowing that they, huh? Like, they knew I was innocent. I got a daughter. We'll never have a relationship. Because she can't never understand why her dad wasn't there. And I don't know how to fix that. That coward took that from me. That coward took that from me. You know, yesterday, I watched my daughter come out of the building from coming from my mom's house. And she was in the cab and she just turned and looked at me. And we looked at each other like we were full-blooded enemies. You know how that feel? Don't nobody know how that feel. But it's all right, though. It's all right. It's part of life. That's the only way it can make sense for me. That's the only way I can survive. Is if I say it's all right. That's the only way. Ain't got no choice no more. Without that, my moms and my sister would be burying me. That's how I make sense of it. It's all right. That's how I keep going every day. It's all right. When I wake up every day, it's all right for me. I'm built for it. Because at the moment I stop saying it's all right, it's the moment I don't want to be here no more. So it's all right. Don't worry, it's all right. 
you know what? Let's let's take a break. Okay, let's just take a break for a second from having to talk about this for just a moment. Okay, because I think I just, I just need a few minutes. I just need a few minutes. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. To our listeners, I just want to acknowledge that Vince is clearly in a lot of pain here. All of us who work on this podcast take the health and safety of our guests very seriously. Immediately after this interview, we connected Vince with a specialized trauma therapist, and we talked to his family to make sure he was being taken care of and supported. In the days and weeks following this conversation, we also spent a lot of time talking and thinking about which parts of this interview to air, whether or not his pain was too raw, too fresh, whether or not Vince really wanted all of this out in the world. We asked him, and the answer is, he does. He wants the world to know what happened to him and how it still affects him today. You know, wrongful conviction stories are often packaged as these stories of triumph. But behind so many of them, there's deep emotional suffering. So to Vince, I just want to say that I'm amazed and humbled by your bravery. You're sharing the truth of what happened to you. And our shared life work is to stop this from happening to anyone else ever again. So with that, let's get back to what happened next in Vince's story. So, Ron... Let's go back to you. You'd been involved at the time of trial. Years pass, and you do get back involved with this case. Can you tell us how you got involved again and how the case eventually started to turn its direction back towards justice? The turning point in the case came in early 2013, when Tommy Malik, who never gave up, 
sent the most extraordinary document to me that I've ever seen. And what Tommy found was a 10-page order from a state Supreme Court justice regarding Raekwon Shabazz and his most recent false testimony where he created a conspiracy to murder a sitting judge. The FBI got involved and they quickly realized what the DA's office could never face, which this is this is a hoax. This is something that Shabazz is doing simply to, to create uh, a reason for him to be an informer to get out of prison. And judge, the judge issues a 10-page injunction saying that Raekwon Shabazz, a.k.a. Marlon Avila, is a clear and present danger to the administration of justice. He is permanently enjoined from ever contacting anyone in law enforcement again. If he feels the need to contact someone in law enforcement, he will contact a special master who I am appointing. And he is the only person that Shabazz is ever to contact because his history and his habit of lying, creating cases, falsifying testimony, falsifying conspiracies is such that to let him talk to law enforcement is in fact to to disrupt the criminal justice system. I had never seen a document like this before. I have never seen a document like that since. And I called the head of the conviction review unit who I'd known from other cases. And he said, just wait a little bit there's going to be things coming out about Detective Scarcella that you're going to want to know. Early on, they took this case. This case was handed to them in 2013. And by the time of this exoneration in 2022, it was the oldest case, the longest any case had lingered. But in the end, they found everything they needed to convince everybody beyond any doubt whatsoever that all three of these young men, then young men, were wrongfully convicted. I started with Tommy. And then in 2017, I realized that they were all going to stand or fall together, just like they did at trial. And so you ended up representing Vince, too, in his effort to be exonerated. But at this point, Vince, you had already been paroled, right? You were paroled in 2020. How did you and Ron get in touch again? I got a letter from him, and uh, he said he wanted to come see me. So, all right, I already knew who he was, so I ain't really, I, you know, by this time, this 2017, I got three years left before I go to the board. I said, all right. I said, my co-defendant must have came up with something. He pulled the rabbit out of the hat for us or something. He ain't coming up here just, just for no reason. And when he came to see me, then he said, look, it's a 75% chance we're going to get it over to him. I said, all right, 75%? I'm saying to myself, that's pretty high on a 75% note. Normally a lawyer tell you at the, at the most he might put it at, if he's trying to be a little cocky, he might put it at 50. So right before I went to the board, I let him know I was going to the board and I asked him to write me a letter. Now normally when you go in front of the parole board, you know, after you say your name, they tell you who they are, their name and everything, and they ask you your name. They jump right into the case and everything. But they didn't do that with me. 
first thing they asked me about was the letter from my lawyer. And I said, yeah. I guess after getting the letter from Ron and Ron told him, he let him know straight up and down, y'all should do the right thing because this case going to get overturned. Y'all don't want to be the reason why he had to stay in prison any longer. So y'all should let him go. And he was right. I made my board when I came home. And then I was sleeping. Called me early in the morning. And he, like he always do when he called me, his greeting. Hey, Vince. I said, what's up, bro? How you doing? He said, I'm all right. He said, listen, you got to be at the courtroom on Friday. Because your case getting overturned. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. I was tired. I was tired that morning. I was tired that morning. But after he told me that I couldn't go back to sleep, I started trying to put together what I'm going to wear to court. Nice white, white shorts, my fitted hat, broke down to the side. I still got a little bit of swag. I told y'all that. Yeah, I came in there, you know. And um, I'm not going to lie, though. When I got there, Rahaya, our other lawyer, she met me out in the hallway. She sensed I was nervous. So I asked her where my co-defendant was at. I said, what time are you at? She said, they bringing him out. So I said, all right. And they brought him out in handcuffs. That kind of, that, 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 that pissed me off. Seeing him come out of handcuffs. When we walked out, we walked out together. At the end, they asked us what we're going to do now. And I told them we're going to Disney World. So when this is all over with, when everything is all over with, me and my boy going to Disney World. Depending on how this turned out, depending on how, after I see the, the last, the, 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 the ending cut, I might invite y'all. I don't know yet. Hey, man, all I want to see is him and Lime Green, you and White at Disney World. That is how I want to see you. No, he, no, no, no. He can never, no, he can never put on Lime Green again. No, that is, no, <laughs> that is against the rules for him. Ron, we're getting to the end of the story. I just want to say you've been working on this case for a long time. This has been a 27-year labor for you. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's the, one of the advantages about living to be my age is that sometimes you do get to see stuff come around again. I'm happy that I'm old enough now that I am living to see some of these things happen. So I wouldn't call it a 27-year labor. I, I'd call it a 27-year look at watching what goes around finally, finally does come around. And while I don't think the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, in fact, I don't think the moral arc of the universe freaking exists, I do know that sometimes for some people, there is a reckoning, at least. And that's what's happened here. And that reckoning, I think, is going to come one day for the officers who did this. We all know that the law creates exceptions for police officers. We know that qualified immunity protects police officers, even when they do things like this. But what I will say is that the world will know their names. They will know their names as bad police. And that's going to have to be where we leave this for now. At the end of every episode of Wrongful Conviction, we do what we call closing arguments. Vince, this is where you get to close out the show. You can talk about anything you want to talk about. And before you do, I just want to say thank you to Ron and thank you to Vince for sharing your story with us today. It has been an honor. Vince, I'll give you the floor. 
first and foremost, let me say thank you to Ron. Thank you to my co-defendant, Thomas Malik. Because without them, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Now, yeah, the penitentiary broke me. I ain't afraid to say it. If you look deep enough in my eyes, you'll see it. But I'm just good at shilling it. That's what the penitentiary is designed to make. Break you, break you down. But for me, like I said, I just keep telling myself, it's going to be all right. They say, Lord, don't place a burden on a person that they can't bear. And I guess it was designed for me to carry a heavy burden. Some days it's light, like today, real heavy. And for the next couple of days, it's going to be real heavy. And I may isolate myself. My girlfriend may not understand it. My moms may not understand it. My sister will, Lord. That's my baby girl, my sister. These tears you see, man, these ain't a facade. This is years of hurt and pain. Those that see this, no one understands something, man. Penitentiary ain't designed for nobody, man. White, black, blue, green. Especially for those that didn't do it. If you did a crime, you know and understand what it is. I could have did a million years long as for something I did. But it's all right, though. Life goes on. Me and my co-defendant are going to survive. Because the same thing I tell myself, he tell himself. Because that's all we got. Our family there, but that's all we got. To tell ourselves we all right, we going to make it. And I'll leave y'all with that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Lauren Eyrider. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Polly, and our producers are Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Roxandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Laura Nyrider. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Next week on the guest-hosted episodes of Wrongful Conviction, Lauren Bright-Pacheco will sit down with Mark Shand, a victim of the Springfield, Massachusetts Police Department and their blatant disregard for the truth. Mark served nearly 30 years behind bars while his family and community fought for his freedom, surviving not only prison, but also a dire medical emergency. Lauren Bright-Pacheco is a brilliant investigator, and she's no stranger to wrongful conviction cases. You may know her from her groundbreaking, incredible podcast, Murder in Oregon and Murder in Illinois. Listen next Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.